Hello and welcome to the Bids, Tenders and Proposals podcast. Here you will get insights on how to write successful bids, how to do business with government, and things to avoid in your submissions. Here is your host Arvind Lau, who has evaluated thousands of tenders as part of his work and continues to provide technical advice and training to a number of government organizations and private sector on tendering, procurement, negotiations and contract management. So, let's get started. Today's episode is brought to you by BidHQ.com.au. BidHQ is a platform where you can manage all your bids in one place and collaborate with your team to create the best bid responses. Sign up for a free trial at BidHQ.com.au. All right, welcome to Bid Standards and Proposals podcast. And today my guest is Mitchell Morley. Uh, Mitchell Morley and I uh, go way back. I've uh, uh, worked with Mitchell for a very, very long time. So I suppose it's giving away both mine and Mitchell's age and the, and the work that we have done in this uh, area. I have worked with Mitchell and also worked on uh, a number of projects uh, on, on tendering and uh, contract management and the like. So I will ask uh, Mitchell. Mitchell, welcome to the podcast. I'll ask you to give a bit of a background on the type of work you do, particularly in the area of uh, tendering and property. Thanks, Ivan. Yeah, thanks for uh, having me on. Yeah, look, I guess you could split my career into two two halves. The first half of my career, I, I worked in predominantly in local government. So I worked for a number of councils, mostly in corporate governance type roles. And then the, the second half of my career, I've been uh, consulting, uh, doing risk and audit and and probity consulting to, to organisations, both councils and organisations in other industries as well. And I guess because I've had those two sort of distinct roles, I've, I've seen tendering and procurement and probity from a number of different perspectives. So obviously working for organisations, I was involved in procuring goods and services. Because I was in the corporate services area, they, you know, I'd often get asked to sit on tender panels or evaluation panels as an independent. So I've seen seen the process from the point of view of the, the organisation actually going out to tender or trying to procure the goods and services. Then obviously in the second half of my career as a consultant, obviously we need to put in tenders and quotes and bids to get work. So I've seen seen the process from the proponent's point of view as well, which gives you a very different perspective on, on tendering and, and procurement. And then I guess, uh, as I said, one of the services that we provide is uh, probity advice and support to, to organisations. So I've acted as probity advisor and provided probity advice to a number of organisations on major tender processes. So I've seen it from that aspect as, as well. And you know, some of the some of the tenders that I've been involved in from a probity point of view have included everything from waste contracts to land remediation, rail and freight hubs, um, sports centre redevelopments. Um, I even acted as a probity advisor for a tender to build a shellfish hatchery, um, <laughs> w- w- would you believe? So, yeah, so I think I've, I've seen it from those different perspectives and, and that I think has helped me to, to understand some of the, the pitfalls and some of the do's and don'ts, I suppose, from, from both sides of the, of the fence. That's fantastic, Mitchell. I think uh, your work in the governance sector in local government probably would have uh, really helped in the sense that uh, you understand. And I think I've I've got a few things that I want to talk to you about as we go along, but you do have that understanding of the, the public funds and the and the and the government regu- the regulated organization should I say, you know, how regulated the, the government sector are for this type of work. 
Yeah, definitely. And, and as you say, it's something we'll probably talk about later, but the rules are very different. And, and that's a key thing for, for tenderers to understand the rules that apply in the industry that you're bidding for work in. And, and you know, the rules in local government are different uh, to, to what they might be in state government and certainly very different to the private sector. So, yeah, my, my background, I think, in the public sector and in that corporate governance role has given me a sound understanding of the, the fundamentals because you're spending, as you say, public money. Um, and those principles apply in other sectors as well, but the rules are different and you need to be aware of the, those differences uh, if you're bidding for work in multiple industries. Right. Probity as a, as a, as a term as, and as it relates to tendering and procurement, I, I know first time I heard the word probity, I straight went straight to the dictionary to find out what <laughs> does probity mean. Yeah. And uh, it's not uh, something that uh, everyday businesses use that term. So can you please give us a, a, a little bit on, on probity and how it relates to tendering and procurement? So, so I think, you know, a good way to think about probity, it's really focused on making sure that the proper process is followed, that the process has integrity, it's about uprightness, it's about honesty, it's about, I suppose, making sure that things have been done the, the right way. And in a procurement sense, it's really about trying to ensure that the procurement process results in a, an outcome that's the best value for money for the organisation. Now, what's best value for money? Well, a lot of people make the, the mistake of thinking that's just about cost and that you know, value for money is just about lowest cost. Obviously, cost and price are key considerations, but they're not the only things that you need to take into account when determining whether you're getting value. You, know, you need to think about the quality of the, the goods or services that you're procuring, whether they're fit for purpose, you know, environmental, work health and safety impacts, long-term uh, whole of life costs, a whole range of things go into determining what constitutes value for money in a particular particular sense. But that's what you're really trying to, to achieve, designing a process and making sure that process runs in a way that the outcome that you get represents best value for money. And usually um, that means running a competitive open process. You know, if, the, if the process is designed to, to get bids from multiple parties that they put in the best bids that they can, that they're well thought, thought through and well designed, then generally at the end of that process, you should get a good outcome and you can confidently say to stakeholders, well, you know, because of the way we designed the process, this is the best outcome we can get in the circumstances and therefore it represents uh, best value for, for money. So I think that's a, that's a good way to think about it. It's really just making sure that the process enables you to demonstrate at the end that you've got the best result that was available in the circumstances. That being said, there are some other parts of probity as well from a procurement point of view. It's also about making sure that decisions are made in an impartial manner. So the decision to award a tender is, is free from bias. It's based on appropriate considerations and basically it's an impartial decision. And that includes making sure that there are no conflicts of interest involved in the process. It's also about making sure that the process is transparent, uh, particularly in the in the public sector. So where you've got you know public money and you've got multiple stakeholders, you need to be able to to demonstrate that it was a proper process. It's not about just saying, oh yeah, everything was done above board. You need to be able to demonstrate that. So you need to have a, a transparent process and uh, one that the decision makers are accountable for. 
that being said, though, there's also the need to protect confidentiality. Um, so, you know, there will be aspects of the, the bids particularly that need to be that are confidential or commercial in confidence that you need to protect the confidentiality uh, around. In terms of trying to get that balance between transparency and confidentiality, I think it's it's important to think about that when you're designing the tender documents in the tender process, the evaluation process, the evaluation report. Try and make sure that as much of that as possible can be made available to stakeholders down the track and the confidential stuff is protected or able to be corralled, I suppose. Sometimes the interwining of the confidential information and the public information is so it's so intertwined that you can't separate it. So the whole thing just stays confidential. So I think it's really important to try and make sure that you um, think about how you can make the details of the process uh, available for scrutiny, but also protect uh, confidentiality. So yeah, range of things I think go into it, but I, I just come back to that value for money uh, issue. If, you, if you're focused on trying to deliver and be able to demonstrate that you've got best value for money, then you know, that, that's really the essence of good probity. I think you're, you're right. The value for money, and one of the things you did mention, Mitchell, is that uh, value for money is not just just the, the price, you know, just how much uh, you end up paying. The value for money has got a, a lot of things associated with it. It's the how the process is going to, how the, the work will be undertaken, how uh, and when the work will un- be undertaken. Sometimes the work could be priced very low, but it'll take two years to get it done and you want it done in six months. So, uh, you know, a little bit higher price might get you a project in six months, which means the value that you are getting of uh, not being tied to a construction site or something for another 18 months is is going to be a better value. Exactly. And I mean, another common problem I see is that the, the focus on the initial cost of constructing the, the building or buying the infrastructure or whatever it might be without taking into account the long-term operational costs. So you might get a, a cheap building or a cheap tram or a a cheap piece of infrastructure, but over the, the life of that infrastructure, it costs more than you expected because you, you didn't factor that into the, the equation. So, yeah, you need to, to think about that whole of life value for money. That's, um, a, that's a very well. good point, Mitchell, because I think I might, uh, I might call you back in for, uh, you know, another session on something like that, because that's something that's missing from yeah. a lot of tenders. Uh, tender process that I've been part of uh, that they don't really look at the whole of life cost and that's something that I want to talk about on this podcast at some stage and I, I might uh, I might touch base with you on that one I'll take you up on that Mitchell if, you, if no you, problem. you're going to uh, be available anyway uh, I think you have you have talked about a fair bit on why property is important that was one of the things I was going to ask uh, but you've covered that unless you want to add something more to it, uh, Mitchell, uh, why probity is important. Yeah, look, I, I think one of the criticisms often of probity requirements, particularly in the public sector, is that they add time and money to the process. So there's extra hoops that um, the tenderers have to go through. There's extra hoops that the, the evaluation committee has to, to sort of jump through. And that can make the process a bit longer and, and a bit more costly. But I think one of the key things about probity is accepting that, yes, there is a cost, but if it, it is just a cost of doing business. And if you're prepared to pay that little upfront cost, generally you'll get a better result, which will outweigh that cost in the long run. So you know, one of the key messages, I suppose, is don't cut those initial corners. Yes, accept that it will take a little bit longer and you may have to put a bit more effort into it. But 
if you do that right, then you would generally find that the benefits you will gain in the long run will far outweigh um, that little bit of extra time and effort that you put in in the beginning. And, and I guess, you know, in, in the public sector, as you said, you're spending public funds. So you've got an obligation to make sure that those funds are being spent wisely and prudently. But even in the in the private sector, that's you know still the case. You've got shareholders, other stakeholders, other employees, you know, boards, a whole range of different stakeholders who still expect you to get the best possible deal for that organisation. So that principle applies, I think, uh, across the board. And if you don't get the probity process right, well, then there are obviously lots of different implications that. Uh, can arise from that, you know, everything from potentially legal challenges, obviously reputational damage is a big issue. You know, if you undertake a flawed procurement process and that becomes quite public or well-known that the process was flawed, can have massive impact on the organisation's reputation and, you know, can also impact on the willingness of contractors or proponents to put in bids in the future. You know, if they feel that the process wasn't well handled or they didn't get a fair uh, a fair go through the process, then next time around, there's a good chance that they'll either decide, well, I'm not going to put the time and effort into to submitting a bid, or um, I'm going to just put in something basic because they're not going to give me a, a run anyway. So why would I spend all that time uh, putting in a in a bid? Or I might jack the price up and say, well, there's going to be a lot of pain based on the last last time we did this. So that you know, I'm going to put the the price up. So. Yeah, it's, it's important to get it right, and there's lots of um, you know pretty serious consequences if you if you don't get it right. So all in all, you know, there's a lot lot at stake if you don't follow the right processes. So in just taking to the next question that I thought I would ask you, Mitchell, is that in what circumstances should a property advisor be engaged? Yep, I think what what's important here is I think. That should be something that is in the organisation's procurement policy or tendering policy. The overarching procurement or tendering policy should set out when you should engage a probity advisor, who has authority to engage uh, an advisor. But interestingly, I find that often organisations' procurement or tendering policies don't cover that. You know, there's probably some throwaway lines in there about probity, but there's really not a lot of guidance for people about when you should use a a probity advisor. So I'd really yeah, stress that you should make sure that your your overriding policy documents provide that sort of guidance on on when to engage someone. Look, I think in my mind there's probably five triggers or a checklist of five things that you should work through to decide do we need a, a probity advisor. Probably the, the first one and the simplest one is the value of the project. So you know obviously the the more money that's involved, the more scrutiny, the more that's at risk, that the stakes are probably a bit higher. So I think in that situation, it's good to have an independent person advising from a probity point of view. So, and it's quite easy to set a threshold. You might say, you know, anything over $5 million or $10 million, depending on the size of the organisation, is a, a first trigger where we should be considering a probity advisor. I think complexity of the procurement process. So, you know, if you're buying a kind of off-the-shelf product then and there's lots of suppliers in the market, then it should be fairly straightforward. But if it's one of those situations where it's not an off-the-shelf product, you're not quite sure what you want, you're maybe going to need to go through an EOI process, you know, you're going to rely on the market to tell you what the best solution is, it's going to be difficult to, to compare 
the bids that you get, that's another trigger, I think, to engage a property advisor because the chances of things going wrong there or it not being a level playing field are much higher when you've got a complex procurement process. So that would be the second sort of trigger. Where there's potentially high stakeholder interest, you know, if it's in the public sector and you're tendering for a major community facility or a piece of infrastructure might be something quite contentious in the community or the electorate, there's going to be a lot of eyes on the the process and the outcome. That's another uh, trigger, I think, to consider engaging an independent probity advisor. The potential for conflicts of interest is another trigger. I think we'll probably talk about that a little bit later, but, you know, where you anticipate that the proponents are likely to have some conflicts of interest or some relationships with uh, the organisation or some of the decision makers, that's probably another trigger to, to engage a, a probity advisor. And probably the last one would be a situation where you're not going to go through a competitive process. Best way usually to achieve value for money is to make sure that you're following an open competitive process. But there are some situations where that's not possible um, and you may need to negotiate directly with a single supplier. Maybe they're the only supplier or they're an existing provider of some sort of um, system or service and you know it's not practical to get someone else in. So you've got to negotiate directly with that, um, that proponent. Obviously, in that situation, it's going to be much harder to demonstrate value for money um, and there's a much greater risk that that proponent knows that they've got you over a barrel, so to speak, because they know that there's no one else in the running, so they may feel they can charge whatever they, they feel like. That's another situation where I think you should have a probity advisor if you feel as though you're going to need to negotiate directly having someone else independent oversee that can help you to be able to demonstrate value for money. So yeah, fair bit there. But I, I think the important thing is have that sort of checklist and of those sorts of things that I just talked about. And if you start saying, yeah, that applies, that applies, well, that's a trigger then to, to think about, yeah, we probably need a probity advisor here. Yeah, I was uh, I was going to ask you about, um, you know, what are some of the things related to probity that regulated organisations such as government departments should consider? And I think in the five points, you've pretty much uh, covered most of it. Now, I did hear you say a number of times about uh, having an independent property advisor. Now, not all property can or has to be external, right? And and can you talk about a little bit about the internal uh, process that the internal property advisors that people can have uh, and also the independence? What's the need for an independent property advisor? Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And I think sometimes people think that the only option is to engage someone external to the organisation. But as you say, that's not necessarily the case. So when I say independent, I guess the, the fundamental principle there is that it's someone who's not directly involved in the management of the, the project that's being procured or the goods or services that, services that are being procured. So, you know, if it's a, a tender to, to build a, a piece of infrastructure, then a property advisor obviously shouldn't be someone who's going to then manage that infrastructure or operate that infrastructure. It should be someone outside of that. But that could be someone internal. could be a, a someone from internal audit. It could be someone from corporate governance section. But it needs to be someone who's removed from the, the, the direct management of that particular So they need project. to maintain some level of independence to the process, right? Cor- correct, correct. The challenge, though, there is that whether you have someone like that in your organisation who has sufficient skills and knowledge about probity to deal with some of the situations that might arise. 
And, and sometimes in smaller organisations, you just may not have someone who has that skill set. So that's often one of the reasons to go external is that, yeah, look, whilst we might have some people who are independent, they don't really have any expertise here. So we're better to get someone who's, you know, done this numerous times, um, knows, you know, all the potential issues that could arise. So we're better to get to get them in. The other the other trigger often for going external is if it is a contentious um, issue and there's lots of stakeholder interest in the outcome, sometimes it's better to be able to say, look, we got someone outside of the organisation um, because, you know, sometimes there's the perception at least that, you know, even even though it's someone independent from the process, if they've worked within the organisation, they're going to tow the uh, the company line and, and not be truly independent. So in that situation, yeah, I'd also consider going external. But if that doesn't apply and you've got the internal skill set, then yeah, there's no reason why you can't look at an internal person to fulfill that role. I did uh, recently some work for one of the local governments, Mitchell, and uh, what I did was uh, I did a policy, a procurement policy review for them. uh, And we set up a, a new procurement policy and that procurement policy actually identified what we identified as a group with their, with their corporate governance is that for probity, uh, there was a certain triggers for probity. Obviously, you talked about those five things that you talked about, and they, of course, are there. One of the things they talked about, and I think your five points cover that very well, was the risk of that project. Say, for example, the project may not cost $10 million or $5 million or, or a million dollars, say whatever your threshold is. However, if the risk of that project is quite significant in the sense if you are dealing with, say, well, I'll just pick a project, say uh, an IT software rollout, which could be quite a, quite an important piece of software about security, privacy, and the like, then that might trigger to have an external property advisor or a property advisor that is a little bit independent to the process. Yep. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, you know, another example that springs to mind is there a, a, an organisation that was going to have to compulsorily acquire a whole uh, lot of land to deliver uh, community infrastructure and you know those there was a number of high profile land owners that they were going to have to acquire the land from so it was going to be a very contentious very closely scrutinized kind of process because you know there were potential for perception that these people were going to get favorite favorable treatment and and that sort of thing so that was one where it was clearly decided look we need an external person here even though we've got the internal people who could do it yeah the the blowtorch is going to be on this one we really need to get someone from from outside so but but i think that's your point is the the key point there is to find that in your procurement policy so if there is some internal resources that can do it put that in your procurement policy that for you know these sorts of projects we've got this team who can provide services but if it triggers these other factors then that's when we need to look at going out to the to the market to get someone external okay well now let's uh, look at uh, the other side of the equation if a tenderer for example is tendering for work what are some of the things they need to know about uh, property yeah look, i think it comes back to something we said earlier i think the important thing is you've got to understand the rules that apply in the industry that you are bidding for the work in and and it's going to differ greatly you know at the moment we we do still do a lot of work in local government but we also do a lot of work in the insurance industry now the rules around procurement and tendering are just 
totally different in those two sectors. So, you know, we need to, if we're putting in a bid in, in local government, we need to understand how the local government code of conduct works, what, what the, um, the legislation says about tendering in local government. We need to understand that and we need to make sure that we don't do anything to, to run uh, contrary to, to those processes. In the private sector, quite different. Some of those rules don't apply. So, you know, the, the sort of information we might put in our bid or the process we expect to go through could be quite, quite different. So I think that's, that's really important from a, a tenderer's point of view is understand the rules that apply to the different industries you're working in. Familiarise yourselves, yourself with those and, yeah, make sure that you comply with those rules. And, and, and I guess, you know, coming back to one of the comments I made earlier about the criticism of probity that it adds time and cost, that's a that's an issue for for tenderers. So you know, if there's probity requirements, I might have to dot a few extra I's and cross a few extra T's in my proposal, and that's going to take a bit more effort. But I think you know you need to accept that too from a tenderer's perspective, because if that little bit of extra effort should help to make sure that the process is fair and impartial and above board, and that benefits everybody. So whilst you might you know sometimes um, I look at some of the things that organizations want us to to complete as part of our tender and think what a waste of time or i've got to go and get a jp to witness this declaration or something like that but then i sort of stop and say okay but that's all part of a bigger process to try and make sure that this is a level playing field and, and that ultimately is going to be in my interest as well so i think it's important for tenderers to recognize that that those extra hurdles i suppose are of a benefit the other thing I'd say, and it's probably not totally a probity kind of thing, but one of the key things I'd say to all tenderers is, is really focus on the evaluation criteria and making sure that you address those. As I said, having sat on the side of evaluating tenders, nothing worse than ploughing through pages and pages of stuff that really isn't relevant to the selection criteria or it's just marketing material and, and that sort of thing. So I think sometimes tenderers think that yeah the more information they provide the better and that's not always the case so i really really think a key message for tenderers is yeah focus on the evaluation criteria make sure that you're addressing those in the best way that you you can and another another point there is price proposals realistically i think you touched on this before that some tenderers will take the view that if we quote a low price we'll get the job and we can always submit variations later on like we know that we're probably not going to be able to deliver it for this, but that's the we'll worry about that down the track. Now that might get you more work initially, but that just causes problems. And you know, variation after variation in a contract is not good for anybody. It, it, it's not good for the organisation. It's not good for the tenderer, and it's not going to stand you in good stead next time around uh, when you're putting in a bid if the previous contract that you had ended up going way over the tendered price. So, I think that's really important for. Tenderers to think about as well. I think that's particularly in the current environment where I'm getting a lot of feedback from organisations that you know projects are going over budget. You know the increasing cost of materials, the supply chain issues that a lot of tenderers are, are having means that they're having to submit variations. They're finding that the tender price is, has proven to be too too low, and it's just causing problems for, for everybody. So I think it's important for tenderers to be responsible in that respect as well. Put your best price forward, but understand the risk and make sure it's realistic. And yeah, you might lose a job here and there because the organisation just wants to go with what seems to be the lowest price. But I think in the long run, that's going to 
do a lot better for your reputation if if people know that these guys are a fair income. Yeah, I think uh, you've touched on a lot of things there, Mitchell, in terms of uh, the tenders, what what are some of the things the tenders need to consider? And um, I think a, a very important part there that you talked about is the evaluation. Now, that's another one that, uh, you know, we could possibly have a discussion around uh, and could be a podcast of its own because it's a very, very important topic. And I think we really need to get some information out to the tenders, particularly uh, and of course, the the, the regulated organisations that are tendering for services, that they need to structure their tender in a way that best brings out uh, the evaluation process is a lot clearer and the tender return schedules and the like are a lot clearer. And also we are able to evaluate the, the tenders uh, in, a, in a better way. Yeah, I, I think that's really critical. And people often don't think about that from a probity perspective. You know, they think probity is about confidentiality and conflicts of interest and all those things. But as I said, if it's about getting value for money, then often the problem stems from poorly thought out evaluation criteria. And I've seen that so many times, again, you know, putting in bids where you read what the evaluation criteria are and you're not really clear about what they're looking for. Or you, or you get the feeling that what they're actually after is something different to what the words are, are saying. And then, you know, overseeing evaluation processes from a probity point of view, you can see the panel struggling to try and differentiate between bids because the evaluation criteria are so vague or poorly worded or often repetitive that it's very hard to distinguish between the, the different uh, proposals that have been put forward. So, yeah, I think that's a really massively important point. Really put some time and effort into making sure that those evaluation criteria reflect what you want, are very clear, and are going to enable you to evaluate the tenders effectively and, and come up with the best um, the best outcome. Because uh, a lot of the times I've found that what uh, they ask for and what they evaluate against are two different things and they don't match. Yeah, and, and look, I've, I've run organisations where we've been unsuccessful and said, oh, can I get a bit of feedback on our proposal? You know, where did we fall down? And they'll say, oh, you, you didn't have A, B, C, D and E. And I've gone and said, well, you didn't actually ask for A, B, C, D and E. <laughs> oh, yeah, but that's what we were looking for. I said, yeah, but that's not what your, your criteria or your, your tender schedules actually Exactly, asked exactly, yeah. Or, yeah. Oh. yeah, so it happens quite a lot and I, yeah, I think that's as you said that's probably a podcast in its own right absolutely absolutely and i think uh, i think i'll take you up on that one too mitchell so i think we've got a few few coming out of these now uh, you know i think we've talked about a few things here about uh, having good property and and what are some of the problems that can be avoided i think you've talked about it right throughout that but in your experience and i know you've touched on a few things you know what sort of problems have you seen that could be avoided through good property. Yeah, look, I think, and this is probably goes to just a good procurement process, full stop, not just probity. But to me, planning is the key. If, if you sit down and plan out your procurement process thoroughly and you do a risk assessment and you, you try and anticipate what could go wrong or, or what some of the issues might be, then in my experience, the process will generally be a lot smoother than a situation where it hasn't been well planned or hasn't been thought through or it's been rushed. And that's another another red flag to me when organisations seem to be in a hurry and they've created some unrealistic timeframes. I mean, I've had organisations contact me and say, we need some probity advice or we need a probity advisor for this project. And you say, okay, 
sounds that sounds fine. Uh, when are you looking to to go to market with this tender? And they'll say, oh, we actually went to market last Monday. <laughs> and you go, well, why are you just contacting me now? There's a good chance that the way you've designed the tender documents or the process that you've designed might have some inbuilt probity issues that. Uh, we could have worked through before you actually hit the market. But exactly, now, that, yeah. now that you're out there, if those issues are inbuilt into the process, then we're on the back foot uh, trying to to manage them. So I really think that the key is if you feel as though you need a probity advisor, engage them early, certainly before you go out to market and get them involved in looking at the tender documents and the, the proposed procurement process and the risk assessment so that they can anticipate some of the potential probity risks and, you know, hopefully prepare or, or put a plan in place so that those risks are mitigated. And, you know, that's a key thing. When we when we develop a probity plan, it's based on a risk assessment. The first thing we do is say, well, what are the potential probity risks here? Is there a heightened risk of conflicts of interest? Our timeframe is going to going to create a, a risk? Is is it likely that we're going to end up having to negotiate with someone? Is it likely that there's only going to be a limited number of players in the market? That's the starting point. And then from that, we can put together a probity plan that then hopefully addresses some of those risks. So that'd be my number one thing is is really yeah, do your planning and engage your probity advisor early. And, and I guess related to that, which I touched on is, is deadlines. Often, you know, we get told, oh, we have to get this out to market next Monday and we have to have a closing date of whatever it is. And it has to go to, has we have to have a, a decision made by such and such a date. And sometimes those deadlines are valid, but often when you sort of probe a bit further, they're not valid. They're just artificial deadlines. And it usually stems from the fact that someone did poor planning or, or didn't get around to, to getting this happening as early as they should have. And now they're jammed up against these expectations and when when those artificial deadlines are in place that's usually a recipe for for a bad outcome because people will cut corners tenderers feel under pressure that they've got to put a bid in within insufficient time so they'll cut corners uh, evaluation plan may not be as robust as it should be it's it's hurried so yeah which again i guess comes back to to good planning but that you know that there's some of the key key things that i think organizations could do to to try and avoid um, yeah, some of the problems that that arise typically with uh, with tender and procurement processes. Most definitely, Mitchell. Well, look, uh, I, when when I have been part of, uh, uh, you know, and I've been part of a lot of procurement advice and and the tender documents uh, with with the local government and the like, and and oftentimes we run into a problem when we ask the question, um, who is the property advisor? And we find out that, uh, I'm sorry, do we have to get a property advisor in place? Yeah. Um, and I think one of the important things you mentioned at, earlier on is uh, is having the policy right. So if you, the policy is right, then I guess uh, you are able to pick the, pick the things and say early enough, uh, you know, those five points that you talked about, which one does it touch? You know, if 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 uh, you know any one of them tick the box, then bang, you need a property advisor, and yep. uh, and of course the timing timing is a is a it's a very very important point, Mitchell, that you raised about uh, about property. It's not only in property, I, and I've been contacted a number of times saying uh, we need to get a set of tender documents out uh, for this particular thing, and I ask. Uh, when when do you need it by? Oh, our contract expires in a month's time or something, you know. <laughs> yeah. So you really um 
are struggling. So the first thing I I would say is you need to extend that contract yep. because we are not in a position to, uh, I'm not in a position to get you a set of documents that are going to meet all the requirements that we want, um, particularly the local government requirements and the legislative requirements and all those other things that uh, we need to meet. So it's so very yep. important to uh, to consider the timelines. Now, Mitchell, I just want to ask you on, you know, I think this is a very property-related question, and uh, I want to talk about a small town contract. Say, say if you're looking at a country town where there is a, only one contractor that can do the work, and then everybody knows the contractor, uh, the local government who's putting out the tender knows the contractor, uh, how do you manage a property around that? What are some of the things that you could uh, alert I, perhaps a council? who is doing something like that mm. and perhaps a contractor who is going to bid for it. Yeah, I think, I think again, from the council's point of view, it comes back to doing your risk assessment. So it comes back to anticipating that that's going to be an issue. So, you know, if we, if we know that there's only one or two contractors locally who are likely to be able to do this work, then we need to design a process to either make sure that we get the best price out of them or to open the process up to people maybe from out of town who could potentially do the work. It's just really anticipating that 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 could be uh, an issue and i think another key point there is if if you are looking to try and encourage people from out of town to to put in bids when there are local contractors it's important to make sure that everybody has access to the same information because it's highly likely that the local guys are going to know the place back to front and uh, know people and all of that sort of stuff and the people from out of town aren't so you've got to make sure that the people from out of town get access to the same information so that they you know know as much as possible as the as the as the local guys the other sorry this is a bit of an aside but the other situation where that applies and is really important is where you've got an incumbent contractor you know in many cases for service contracts you've got someone in place who's already performing that service and may have been doing it for you know three years four years ten years there's always the risk that incumbent is going to have a massive advantage because they know how the service works and they they understand it and someone who hasn't done it is going to be behind the the eight ball to some extent that's a fact of life and you know the incumbent's always going to have that advantage but it's really important in that situation again to make sure that that it's everyone else who may be interested in putting in a bid has access to the same information so as much as possible you create a level playing field by ensuring that they know as much as you can tell them things that the existing incumbent knows so i think that's a that's a really important point as well but coming back to your your, your question about the small town contractors yeah i think you've just got to anticipate that process try and make it a, a level as level a playing field as you can the other thing that springs to mind there is that a lot of Councils in particular will have local preference policies. So where they want to try and provide work to, to local contractors or people who are employed locally, that's probably a whole topic in itself as, as well. But, yeah, yeah. But if, yeah. but if they do have that, then it's important about being upfront about that, that we have this policy and this is how we're going to apply it, you know, whether it's a 10% weighting to a local contractor or yeah, whatever that's what it might I've be. seen. That's what I've seen in yeah. some of the local government trying to have that weighting uh, to give some objectivity to it. Yeah. Yeah. But but make sure that's very clear that you know we yeah. have that policy and we have that preference. So the people from out of town can say, all right, well, I've got to weigh up whether it's worthwhile me putting in a bid because I know I'm going to be 10% behind the eight ball because I don't have, um, work in the in the town normally. So I think it's important to be very open about about that. And I guess the last part of your question was what what should the contractors be thinking in that situation? Well, I think 
they've got to be mindful that they play by the rules as well. There's the chance that they're going to be down the local sporting field on Saturday while their kids are playing soccer and they're going to run into the mayor or the <laughs> definitely yeah you know, one yeah. of the staff from the council and there's the temptation to say oh by the way how's that tender going or you know how am I looking or what other bids did you get or that sort of thing um, I think they've got to be very conscious of just not doing that and and stepping back and saying look I understand there's a process so I'm not going to put you in a difficult position or jeopardize my bid by being seen to lobby or or um, ask questions that I shouldn't be be asking. So I think yeah, it's important for those contractors in town to to make sure that they play by the rules. Uh, so as that'll well. be that'll be an advice to both the tenderer and the yeah. contract uh, and sorry and the and say local government as well, wouldn't it? Yes, definitely. And, and, and the other thing I'd say for the contractors in that situation is there's also a, a danger that you don't put in a, a solid bid because you assume that the organisation already knows you. Oh, yeah, yeah, they know who I am. I don't have to fill that schedule out or I don't have to provide all this information because, you know, everyone knows what I Definitely. do and who Definitely. I am. Yes. But if there's other contractors who do put in bids and if it's evaluated thoroughly, you may find that, you know, you get scored down because you haven't provided all of the information. So I think that's another important thing for the contractors in that situation. Don't just assume that because everybody knows you that you don't have to provide the information. You've still got to put the effort into to putting your best foot forward in your in your bid. Yeah. Okay. Well, here's a, a trick question for you, Mitchell. What is the difference between a property advisor and a property auditor? Yeah, it's a it's a good question because it comes up all the time, and it get the two uh, roles I think get confused or inter interchange the terminology. The best way I would suggest that you think about it is that a property advisor oversees the process in real time. So they are there in real time. They are reviewing documents. They are potentially attending evaluation meetings. They're observing uh, workshops with tenderers. They're, they're reviewing addendums that get sent out to, to tenderers. So they're, they're there in real time. A probity auditor, on the other hand, is reviewing the process after the fact. Right? So they come in at the end or at a key milestone and they go back and say, well, what happened up to this point? And did it follow the probity plan? Did it follow the procurement policy and, and that sort of thing? My view is that you're always better to engage a probity advisor, well, most of the time, because they're part of the process and they can hopefully head off issues as they occur. Whereas a probity auditor isn't going to do that. They're going to go back and say, oh, you had all these problems along the way. You should have done this. You should have done that. And, and now and what? Now what? They have to go back now, you know? That's right. And it may be that you've got to do it again or or there's the process that gets called into to question. So I think you're generally better to have a probity advisor. However, if you do get to the end of a process, whether you had a probity advisor or not, and maybe there was a whole lot of issues, maybe there's a whole lot of stakeholder concern about whether the process was above board and run properly, it may well be good in that situation to get a, a probity auditor to come in to give stakeholders some assurance that it did actually happen correctly and that it was a, a proper process and that the decision maker can actually make the decision. Or the other the other benefit of a probity auditor is we need to learn from the mistakes that we made. So let's get an auditor to come in and review the process and highlight where we could have done things differently and we'll you know learn from that and do that differently in the future. So yeah, I think understand people need to understand they're two quite different roles they shouldn't be done by the same person so if you're the probity advisor you're act, you're giving advice in real time you shouldn't then come in and do an audit at the end because effectively you're auditing your own work and so you're not 
independent. So if you do need a probity auditor, you do need to make sure that they weren't the probity advisor and they, they do have some level of um, independence. The, the, the other thing with that, that doesn't mean that the probity advisor can't provide some sort of report at the end. Um, and we would typically do that. We would provide a sign-off report, not an audit, but it's basically saying, look, we oversaw the process and nothing came to our attention that would question the probity of the process. From what we could see, the probity plan was followed. And as the decision maker, we feel you can have some confidence and some assurance that you can sign off on this outcome, um, knowing that the process was was robust. So the probity advisor can still do that, but they're not they're not providing an actual audit report. That's excellent, Mitchell. In terms of the the probity advisor and property auditor, obviously. One does the auditing, the other sees the process through, and uh, and it is like your advice is to always have a property advisor on board through the process so that you don't trip on on number of things rather than finding in the end that you could have done a, uh, a number of those things better. I, I do recall one of the projects that I had a, a property advisor on board, and then, and then in the end, I was summoned to have a property auditor to come in and looked through the process and they provided an independent report to to council to let them know that the whole process was followed as as required yeah and, and that may be valid as i said if, if it's a particularly contentious or it's a particularly problematic process then maybe getting an auditor in at the end adds some merit because it'll give some more confidence most of the time if it runs reasonably smoothly i would think that the probity advisor should be able to give enough assurance to the decision maker that it's okay to, to sign off on the on the outcome. Okay. All right, Mitchell. Well, thank you very much for your time. We have uh, covered quite a bit on property, but I think you've raised a few bits and pieces in there that I might be inviting you back here to talk about. And I think evaluation is one of those parts. And I was thinking of doing a podcast on evaluation, but uh, it's, it's better to have a conversation with you, given that you've been on uh, quite a few evaluation panels from both as a property advisor and of course, as a as a person evaluating, and of course, you you do write a number of uh, your proposals as well that goes yep. into and gets evaluated. So, uh, so let's uh, let's tee up another time in sometime in future, and uh, and talk about that. But uh, thank you very much for your time, Mitchell. Really appreciate you coming in. You've given some really good insights into these things. If you if anybody wants to get in touch with you in terms of property advice and the like or or other other work, where can they go to find out? And what are some of the things that you do, Mitchell? Yep. So so my company is uh, Inconsult. I'm a I'm a director of of Inconsult, and we we don't just provide property advice. We provide I, I guess risk management and assurance services to you know organizations across multiple different industries and uh, i guess we like to think that we help organizations to take risks confidently so they can achieve their objectives and we do that by helping them to you know design and implement risk management frameworks um, business continuity cyber security we're doing a lot more work in that space now where we're helping organizations make sure they've got um, robust cyber security frameworks in place and we also provide assurance services so we do a num- we you know, conduct audits of various business processes. And as part of that, we we provide probity services. So um, that might be acting as a probity advisor. It might be just providing some one-off probity advice on a particular issue, or it could be doing a probity audit as well. We kind of provide that full range of services when it comes to, to probity. So, um, yeah, we best best place to find us is probably via our website, which is www.inconsult.com.au. We're also on the state government panel. So there is a New South Wales government panel of providers who provide probity services. Um, and that's 
it's probably a good point for for councils and state government departments that you can access that panel and get quotes from um, people who are on that that panel if you do need some probity services so you don't have to go you know out to market cold or uh, do your own tender if you need a probity uh, advisor and obviously as I said we're on that um, that panel so yeah anybody who um, you know, needs any sort of probity uh, advice or internal order or risk management advice yeah go on to our website and all our details and um, services are, are listed there and be uh, yeah happy to to help all right let's wrap it up there so anybody who's looking for any 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 advice on probity and the like and uh, Mitchell Morley comes very highly recommended I've worked uh, with him on a number of projects uh, and uh, Mitchell I hope to work on a few more with you so <laughs> looking forward yep, to likewise. that yeah, thank you very much for joining uh, joining me today. I really appreciate it. And uh, everybody, thank you very much for listening and hope you can join us again. And all the best with your bids, tenders and proposals. Talk Thanks, Avind. Remember, you can get more information about this episode of the podcast and other episodes of our podcast at bidsmart.com.au.